Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, Matt, my undergraduate uh, university was the University of Richmond, Richmond. And one of the reasons I went there is they had a really good undergraduate business school. And our next guest is also a graduate of the University of Richmond. And then she went and she had her MBA from the University of Virginia. The Wahoos, they work really hard at the Darden School. I remember that when I went for my visit. Rebecca Felton, Senior Market Strategist for Riverfront Investment Group, joins us. Rebecca, fellow spider, welcome. Happy New Year. What am I doing in 2022 with my 401k? Well, thank you so much for having me. And yes, go spiders. Um, we we are still constructive on stocks, so we're still leaning into stocks over bonds, using bonds really <clears throat> just to, to protect us on the downside in terms of volatility, but heavy on the U.S. simply because we believe the economic picture remains stronger here and, and more consistent, if you will, versus the rest of the world. What uh, what do you think about the 40-60 portfolio, 60-40? 40, well, I mean, we, we, for many of us, that's sort of where we are from a demographic standpoint, right, in terms of what our risk tolerance is. Um, but we're, we're still in that portfolio probably, uh, again, five to 10 points overweight equities um, and still a little bit overweight uh, cash rather than putting that money to work in fixed income right now. So we're up at about 4% cash, I think. Uh, which is a which is a larger than normal position for us. So we still would like uh, stocks and cash over bonds. All right, Rebecca, where do I go here in the equity markets? You know, I've, I think a lot of us, a lot of the folks listening, have been, you know, since maybe even since a financial crisis, you know, long the big tech names, the Apples, the Amazons of the world, and they've done really well. But a lot of folks that have been maybe pretty adept here uh, in the financial crisis have done quite well with the cyclical trade, you know, maybe some of the energy, the financials, uh, some of the reopening stories. How, how do you think about that over the next couple of years? Well, all of the above, if you will, in terms of, you know, the, the barbell trade that you've been hearing so many people talk about, that's where we are. Uh, we've been there for the majority of the last six to nine months. So we are still overweight technology, particularly in our longer horizon strategies with an emphasis on software, willing to pay up because of the consistency of earnings and revenue growth. On the flip side, we have added back to financials, and we have beefed up exposure to industrials, specifically in the infrastructure space. So we, and we also have uh, discretionary names that play into um, both reopening and stay at home. So not trying to ride the fence here, but since we still know that we are in an uneven trajectory, bumpy but up, it seems to make no sense. In terms of the Omicron scare. I mean, the, the, the numbers are eye-popping, but it doesn't seem to be bothering anybody in the market. Does this seem like the end to you? Well, it could be a prolonged end. I mean, I, I certainly don't know that much about the, the medical aspect of it, but what we've seen is that um, it, is, it is less severe, uh, more cases, but fewer hospitalizations. Uh, but that doesn't mean it won't be disruptive in the near term. So you're seeing, you know, sporadic shutdowns, sporadic uh, uh, places where people are being told, go ahead and work from home a little bit longer. And that's going to have some implications for that supply chain congestion that we've had. But that doesn't mean it's permanent. Uh, but to your point, the vaccination rates are up, the booster rates are up, and this seems to be a, a less severe strain. Rebecca, how concerned are you that this Federal Reserve 
may get it wrong, may find itself maybe behind the curve, which some people are suggesting, and maybe be forced to kind of be more aggressive, and that could be a problem. Well, we we believe that they have been, again, measured throughout. Uh, we think that the market seems to be signaling that they don't believe that the Fed is, is uh, making a mistake. Rather, they think that the, the Fed is striking an appropriate balance. Obviously, those uh, minutes that you'll get, um, I guess, this week are going to be telling because people seem to be sensitive to anything that's a little more uh, hawkish than what was priced in. But net-net, folks seem to be expecting uh, both uh, tightening and uh you know, tapering next year. So I think that, or this year, I guess we should say. <laughs> we still have to get used to it. Absolutely. What, what, what kind of, I mean, how important is it to you to think about the balance sheet unwind? Is that too in the weeds or do you think it's going to have a serious effect on the market or do you think they're not going to really do it? Well, I think that, I, I, I think it's going to be data dependent. Obviously this week, um, employment imp- report will be very important in terms of um, if it does hit that 4% number or even below. Um, but then again, uh, the Federal Reserve's definition of full employment, we still don't know it. And, and we expect that it's a little bit lower than where we are. But I, I think that we, we, we all have this day of reckoning where this is the year where, where the policy is going to change. And so, um, you know, it, whether it's priced into the market or not, I would tend to believe it is and that stocks still represent the best um, alternative for long-term growth just because of the, the potential, again, for earnings growth, the strength of U.S. corporations net-net, and um, the fact that, you know, rates go up, your bond prices go down. So um, not our favorite place to be. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Rebecca. Great having you on the program. Earlier today, we had the ISM data came out with some manufacturing data came in at 58.7. The consensus was for 60. So a little bit below consensus, but still 58.7. It's uh, more than 50. That means the manufacturing sector is expanding. Let's bring in Tim Fury, chairman, Institute of Supply uh, Management, a business survey committee. He's got his master's and MBA from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Those guys are serious math geeks up there at RPI. So Tim loves the numbers. Tim, what do the numbers tell you today? Hey, Happy New Year. So, yeah, 58.7, this is really a transition month. Transition meaning that we saw the input side kind of weaken a little bit. Supplier delivery number came down. Uh, inventory, manufacturing inventory, inventory came down a little bit, too, primarily because of end-of-year cash management issues. We saw the employment number gain again slightly, which we've been predicting for the last three months. So everything's really good here, no doubt about it. So the transition means that the production number didn't step up to the level that we had hoped that it would step up to, uh, primarily because of the timing issues without the uh, in the month of December. So I would have thought that production number would have hit 64 or so with that employment number where it's at. Demand is still clean uh, across all the different elements, the new, uh, new export orders, customer inventories, backlog, you know, new order number, all really good. And we saw the improvement on the input side, which is what we we're hoping for. What we didn't see was the pop on the output consumption side primarily because production didn't step up like it should have, and that was primarily due to the fact that we had timing issues in the month of December. So um, what do you expect then in terms of the forward-looking numbers? Are we going to have an acceleration? Are we hanging around this pace, um, or are you worried about a slowdown? Oh, geez, you know, this is the problem. So uh, we had the same issue back in March and April of 2020, 
and in May and June of 2021. March and April is when we fell off the cliff. Uh, uh, May and June is when we climbed back up the cliff. And these monthly surveys, which are great, they're the best and earliest indicator that we have. Uh, at the time, I, I remember saying that I wish we were doing this thing weekly or twice a month because things change so rapidly. Well, what's happened since you know these numbers were collected is that the Omicron virus obviously is affecting a lot more people than anything that we've seen so far. The positive thing is that it's not as deadly as what we've seen so far, but it's affecting a lot more people. 20% of people being uh, tested are coming up positive, which really equates to absenteeism, unplanned call-outs, uh, kids not being able to go to school. In my own uh, local area here where, where I, I live, uh, schools were closed yesterday and today because they couldn't get enough bus drivers. So, you know, we're now back into this another lumpy wave, speed bump, where employment numbers are going to be impacted in January, February. Supply delivery numbers are probably going to end up going back up. Uh, the uh, manufacturing inventory will probably go back up, too, reflecting people holding more finished goods and more work in process. So, you know, but as long as the demand stays strong, okay, we'll deal with this. But, you know, here we go again. We saw a similar thing in late summer with Delta. This one is probably going to be a bit worse because it's affecting a lot more people. Tim, what are your respondents saying about the supply chain? Is this a, a, a full year 2022 issue? Well, so you know, we have really positive comments on the shortage side and on the lead time side. Both of those are early indicators. We had uh, 10% of the comments uh, around shortages saying that things are getting better compared to November. 12% of comments saying that lead times are getting better compared to November. Uh, our comments around hiring were flat at about 7% improvement uh, versus November and October. The difficulty in hiring had improved 30% saying it was difficult, to, 37% saying it was difficult to hire, 52% saying it was difficult to hire in November. Uh, the hire to force manage ratio is still at a really good level. But, you know, it all doesn't really mean all that much. You have to really rely on what's happened in the last five to seven days, and that is that there's a, everybody knows somebody who's sick. And everybody knows somebody who's impacted, and it's generally running through families. So that's going to impact the labor number. It's going to impact the employment number, and it's going to impact the transportation efficiency, as well as the supply delivery number. So that's kind of the that's the Q1 forecast at this point. Is that you know we're going to we're going to stay probably at a pretty high PMI level, 58 yeah. to 61, but it, it's going to be driven again by the input side, not so much by the uh, output side. Tim, great to get your take. Thanks so much. As usual, for spending some time with us, Tim Fiore there from ISM. Let's talk about working right now in terms of... Uh, it is very lonely uh, here. Oh, oh, uh, workplace provider IWG, formerly Regis. Yep. Uh, you probably know them. I certainly do, as there's one in this building. Mark Dixon is the founder and CEO. He joins us to talk about... You know what um, this business is like uh, during uh, or hopefully getting closer to after the COVID pandemic. Mark, um, how did uh, IWG, how did Regis deal with the, this last couple of years? Well, we've actually, it's, it's a good news and a bad news story. The bad news story is clearly, you know, it's very hard to combat, you know, government uh, lockdowns where, People are stopped from coming into an office. But, you know, that's the bad news story. The good news story is the entire world has, has, uh, of work has really experienced sort of remote working. Um, it, it's working other than sort of commuting to a central office to carry out your activities. 
and look, it, it worked. I mean, the, the, the whole world didn't fall over in the last two years. In fact, companies have become more efficient. People have become more efficient. And, so, and working remotely has really become something that's mainstream. From being something that was sort of on the edge of what companies did, it's now absolutely mainstream. And that's the good news story. So we've seen consistent growth throughout 21. We're going into 22 very strongly. So, you know, we're optimistic on the outlook as more companies change. Mark, you know, assuming we're going to get through this Omicron variant uh, in relatively short order, that's kind of what we're hearing from some of the experts. In reality, on the other side of this, what's the office work, you know, kind of landscape? Are people ever going to go back to the five days in the office kind of thing? Or is hybrid slash work from home the new norm? It's going to be the new norm. It is the norm today, and it's going to stay. Look, 77% of employees are saying that a place to work closer to where they live, it, look, it's not always working from home. A lot of folks don't want to work from home. They've got too many interruptions. They can't get the job done. But what they're asking for is somewhere close to where they live to work. What The enemy is the long commute. The enemy is the expensive commute. The people don't want to waste their time doing that. So 77% of employees are saying that it's a must-have for their next job move. They, they, they absolutely want it. And this, you know, you can talk to any large corporation or any growth company, and they're saying, look, it's what new talent are asking for and the existing talent talent's asking for. So it's absolutely going to be, become the norm. Look, who would ever vote for a one- or two-hour commute every day? I mean, it's an absolute waste of time and money. I've so been doing you, it for 35 years. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're, you're different than a normal person. You I vote think I for more business trips. You vote for fewer vacation days. You, you're strange. Uh, Mark, in terms of um, looking for real estate, right? When, you're, when you um, are looking for new sites to put offices, are you looking more suburban then now? Absolutely. And we have been, look, we specialize and we have done really since our inception 30 years ago, at getting full national coverage. And national coverage is not about being in New York City and San Francisco and Dallas, etc. It's about being in every city in America, and that is what we're working on. Every city in the world, every town in the world, that is what we're working on. Today, we operate in 1,100 cities. We're operating just over 3,500 buildings, but 1,100 cities is the coverage people are looking for. So we're in full growth mode going into 22. Um, we're still opening up, by the way, in the big cities because it's the buying opportunity of a generation because, you know, the cities are depressed worldwide. People, there's a lot of space. Prices are coming down. Um, but our focus more than ever is on the suburbs and the deep suburbs, the countryside, um, mm. because that's where people have moved to in the past two years and they're not coming back. They're not coming back. That's uh, that's very, very interesting, and it kind of jibes with what we hear from a lot of employers as well. Mark Dixon, founder and CEO of IWG PLC. So let's think about 2022. We had a great 2021. We're talking the S&P up 27%, but all right, now i got to start all over again. We reset. Brian Whalen, he's a co-chief investment officer and general's portfolio manager, TCW's Fixed Income Group. 
Brian, I know you guys at TCW you know, have been really, I would say, cautious. It just kind of feels to me uh, a cautious outlook here. How are you thinking about the fixed income markets in 2022? Where are opportunities for fixed income investors? Yeah, well, thanks for having us. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of opportunities. Talk about a great year in 2021. I mean, that was for equities and a lot of other things. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> Well, my friends we that trade that trade credit, I'm like, what do you guys do for a living? I mean, yeah, what do you do every day? Percent. I guess that isn't so bad for most people. For a bond manager, you know, <laughs> we, don't even like, we don't like to put any negatives in front of our, our return right. numbers. But, but nonetheless, that's what we have. You know, it's a, it's an interesting year. Um, you know, outright yield levels obviously are not, are not attractive. I mean, if you were <laughs> – just to put – the year-to-date move in perspective, if you were by the bond uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, you know, we've moved up about 17 basis points since then. So you've lost almost two years of coupon. Uh, and it just kind of tells you the vulnerability at these yield levels. So um, not a lot of market opportunities yet. You're right. We've been defensive. We've got our powder dry. Um, and I think, you know, the, the move in interest rates and, and what you're seeing happen in some sectors uh, of the stock market reacting to higher rates you know, it, it's probably indicative of opportunities to come in the bond market, particularly in, in parts of the, the credit parts of the bond market, like corporate bonds, uh, emerging market bonds, et cetera. So what are your clients? I mean, you're not managing a small chunk of change. You've got $225 billion in fixed income assets. What are your clients looking to do? Are they mainly um, hedging, uh, hiding from risk. What's what's um, what's the interest right now? Yeah, look, I think you know you talk about bonds and the, and the, I think you're kind of alluding to the the role it's supposed to play in a portfolio. I mean, you know, let's kind of make it round numbers. I mean, you know, let's talk about the ten year. You know, one one point seven percent on an outright yield basis. Not that attractive, but you know, it's all about the portfolio. Uh, and you know, if we hit a scenario where you know. Let's say uh, we hit the pocket of pocket of volatility, and, and for some reason equities decline 20 to 25 basis points. You know, what you're going to get from your bond portfolio may not, on an absolute basis, be what it provided in the past. You know, but you could still get a kind of an upward of close to a 10% positive return. You know, in an overall bond portfolio, um, which which should help kind of mitigate some of those losses. Brian, I, I know you spent some time at. Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenret, Gen DLJ, wow. they had the DLG. famed Back in the day, yes. famed high-yield effort there until my yeah. Credit Suisse first Boston came in and bought you guys, and then it all just went south. But let me tap into your high-yield expertise. I'm willing to take some risk. I'm willing to go into the high-yield market. I'm willing to take some credit risk. What sector should I look at? Oh, be careful. Be careful. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, <laughs> look, I mean, we just – Things have been so good, and you know, investors' memories are short. And we just came off a year um, where you know the default rate in the high yield bond market—I mean—was basically zero. We're talking about 25 basis points uh, of a default rate, which you know historically those numbers are kind of more like you know three percent to four percent. Uh, and it's just been due to such such a strong recovery, such supportive monetary and fiscal policies. You know, and it's not necessarily to say that that couldn't continue for another year, but you also, it's like all risk, you got to decide what you're getting paid for it. You know, and the yield right now in the high yield bond markets, you know, just above, you know, about 4%. Um, so, meaning there's there's not a lot of extra spread compression to go. So I think, you know, ourselves, I think you talk to most, you know, experts in the bond market, they're saying kind of, you know, your returns for the next year in the high yield bond market are probably at best a coupon clip, 
which is kind of that, you know, 4% plus or minus. But if we, if we hit a patch of volatility, equity markets underperform, you know, maybe the Fed's a little more aggressive than, than the market's currently expect, expecting um, with regards to rate hikes or the balance sheet reduction. I don't think the credit markets, particularly the high-yield bond market, is going to react too well. So you could see, you know, returns, you know, go down to the low single digits, if not negative. I want to just get your take on the Fed quickly and also check up on my producer's English language skills. He wrote here, Fed tapering too slow with one O. But I don't know if he means <laughs> Fed tapering is going too slow or Fed tapering is too slow with two O's. It, what you- I, well, it, <laughs> I don't think you're going to get better what they've offered now, which is basically they're going to end this tapering. And if, let's be clear with the listeners, right? Tapering means they're going to slow the addition of assets to the balance sheet, which is already close to $9 trillion. So, you know, they're going to kind of end the growth of the balance sheet by March. I don't think you're going to get anything faster than that. I think the bigger question now, it's not necessarily in today, specifically, not necessarily about rate hikes. You know, the market's expecting about three hikes next year starting, you know, around May. Bigger question right now is, you know, once they stop adding to the balance sheet, are they going to actually start to reduce it? Like, will they proactively look to sell securities into the marketplace or let the ones mature and not replace it, you know, that could have a big impact because a lot of the rate move we saw in the last three, four months of the year was about the short end of the curve. What's the Fed going to do with the Fed hikes? If the Fed starts changing its, its, its plan for what it does with its balance sheet in terms of reducing the size of it, that could really impact the longer end of the yield curve. And that has a lot of impacts, you know, across the economy, including, the, including markets like housing. Brian, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for stopping by. Brian Whalen, co-CIO and general portfolio manager at TCW Fixed Income Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.